I'm Jax Enlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip Till Farmer podcast series. In today's program, we continue our look into cover cropping opportunities in a strip till system, along with some termination tips and tapping into local and national resources for cover crop information. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you'll be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, Jack Boyer is no stranger to experimentation. As a retired ag engineer, the Rhinebeck, Iowa farmer spent more than three decades proactively problem-solving equipment issues. For the last 10 plus years, he's applied his trial and error methods to cover crops and today utilizes them on 100% of his corn, seed corn, and soybean operation. But Jack acknowledges a successful marriage of strip till and cover crops takes work and a willingness to learn from mistakes while also celebrating the successes. In part two of today's Strip Till Farmer podcast, Jack details his experience integrating cover cropping practices into his operation to include examples of nutrient application savings, water infiltration benefits, and interseeding trials. Got a couple things going repeating the 30-inch rows, but this is a comparison of 30-inch rows and 60-inch rows. Now you think I fell off the deep end. But anyway, uh, these 60-inch rows have the same population per acre as does the 30-inch rows, so the spacing's half the size on the plants. But anyway, what that allows is a lot more light down there to the soil, so there's a lot more species can survive in between those. And some of the data from a friend of mine that had been doing these, these studies without cover crops, he's showing that he's getting equal yields in that 60-inch row that he was the 30-inch row, and it's all about harvesting sunlight. Will that be the case? We'll see this fall. Uh, the jury's still out on that, but this is, and I, I really, I went out there a long ways, uh, three acres, so I'm, I'm high risking it here. But, but anyway, uh, We'll see how this turns out, but the cover crops in it are growing good, and you know, in the 30-inch rows, they're shading out and looking pretty tough. So my, my whole point here is, is encouragement. You know, I'm doing strip till on, on uh, corn before corn, no-till before soybeans, but trying to get co cover crops worked into your organization. Start small, you know, kind of like with my 60-inch deal. I'm not trying to plant the whole farm to it, but try a little small thing, figure out how to make it work. Uh, if you're new to cover crops, try a single species. I mean, the mixtures are better and, and uh, they do more work. Sometimes they can be more expensive too, depending on how you work them. Learn from others that are using cover crops, at least in the state of Iowa, and I think it's nationwide now. There's lots of meetings being held around cover crops and, and how to get them to work, giving you ideas on how to get them to work in your operation. As I said earlier, you know, the climate, so consider all of those things, the climate, location, crop rotation, all those things in, into the 
the thing as you work toward trying to figure out what your cropping deal or what cover crops will work for you. Some people have tried planting some shorter season uh, varieties on their cash crops in order to get their cover crops planted earlier. Plant some easier cover crops, plant something that'll winter kill if you're concerned about getting it killed in the spring. So there's, there's some things there. There's some decision tools that are available, plus the local expertise, and, and I'll give you, there's Midwest, that MCCC, is, there's a website there, Midwest, Midwest Cover Crop Council. They've got an excellent tool on that for you to look at that'll help you select some species. Uh, Green Cover Seed Smart Mix, it's a company out of Nebraska that sells cover crop seed, but they have got this tool online that's free for anyone to use, and it'll help you uh, select some cover crop seeds for your area, because it, it takes that all into consideration. Practical Farmers of Iowa has an extensive database of all of the research projects that we have done over the last 30 years, and it, at this address you can go in there and search by cover crops, search by various things, and it's available free to the public. You don't have to be a member to access that database, so there's lots of cover crop information in that database. Uh, this is the one that shows that chart that I showed you earlier that had the different seeds on there. Gets them all tied up there so you can see it a little better, those different websites. There's, there's I think, all good resources that you can use to try to look at them. This is a, a quote that I, I saw here recently, and, and I think it, it has merit, at least for me it did, and it says, we abuse the land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. And until we look at it as part of our community, we probably will continue to do that. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible, and welcome in Dr. Ray Acevedo, former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for Topcon Agriculture. In this week's Technology Tips from Dr. Ray, he discusses the latter approach to nutrient management and the importance of monitoring soil pH levels. I always like going back to some core soil fertility when we're dealing with nutrient management, whether we have sensor technologies or not. We have to really start looking at what data do we need to collect to make informed decisions. Informed decisions are key to improving profitability and nutrient management, whether you're in strip till, no till, or ridge till. And so if we start to look at nutrient management, you know, I thought a rather eloquent way that is put, you know, giving credit to Brian Arnell with this latter approach was this looking at nutrient management as a stepping stone type ladder. So we have to start at the bottom and work our way up. We're never going to get to the point or we just aren't yet to the point with sensor technologies to where you don't have to soil sample. It's still a highly recommended practice that can really improve the quality of your nutrient management program. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Jack Boyer, who answers some questions on aspects of his cover cropping program including herbicide applications and his 60-inch corn experiments. One question I had for you, Jack. What is, what is your um, herbicide program uh, before interseeding as far as your pre-plant and stuff like that goes? The, uh, the question, I think, was it, what is the herbicide program before this interseeding? Uh, generally, on the burn down, uh, my base that I'm using now is cereal rye and rapeseed. And so where I'm going to corn 
it is usually gramoxone. And if, it, if I don't use gramoxone, then it's Roundup with 2,4-D to kill that, that uh, rapeseed. Because the deal with rapeseed is some of it has the uh, Roundup ready canola because they're, they're real close cousins. And 2,4-D will, will get it, or gramoxone will get it by itself. So that's the burn down. And then uh, uh, going to soybeans, it, it's uh, nearly always Roundup. Yeah, for your... 60-inch row corn there on your higher population. How's your stand been on the corn itself? Has it laid down in any of the wind events or anything along like that? The question is around uh, the standability of that 60-inch corn. Uh, and granted, this is my first year doing it, but we did have some high winds here this spring. And, and in this thing, I've got four replications, 30-inch rows and 60-inch rows across the field. There's no difference in the standability. In, so far, but you know, 30-inch rows didn't go down, and 60-inch rows didn't go any. So I've got very limited experience with which to make that call. But I, there's like 20 farmers in the state of Iowa that's doing this particular trial, and I've not heard anybody else that has complained about them being more susceptible to, to breaking stock breakage or, or leaning over. So so far, so good. That's about as well as I can qualify it. 35,000 per acre, but that's the same in 30 series, and I mean 30 uh, inch rows as it is in 60. It's just when you get to 60. And a, li a little thing I did differently on mine is instead of putting them all in the same row, I've got a quasi twin row. I made two passes, and I put a different population in one pass than I did the other pass, so that hopefully they wouldn't wind up side by side. They're three inches apart. Jack, I have a question for you. For your uh, tonnage that you had, that you removed the rice straw, what did you figure the value of that fertilizer that you had to put back on to uh, replace what you lost when you sold that straw off your fields? The question around uh, the value of the raw straw, I think, uh, the rice straw that I took off where I baled it and, and harvested it, that I only did that the first year, and uh, I sold that at $65.00 and I later kind of determined based on the prices and, and looking at what the nutrient removal rate of that straw would have been, it probably cost me $10 because uh, it looked like the value was closer to $75 an acre, or a ton rather, than the 65. And since then, I've, one more time, I have uh, sold just a small, this year in fact, like 10% of it, he just wanted a few bales. I did bale some of that off, but I at least got the $75 a ton out of it this time. But I prefer to spread it and leave it all down. How, how are you uh, taking into account that credit for the nitrogen in the, in the cover crops? And are the, the nitrogen modeling programs like in Circa and Precision, are they able to, to uh, uh, take that into account? The nitrogen that, that I had in mind, the, there was biomass samples taken, collected, and they were sent to Iowa State for analysis, and so they, they uh, measured the amount of nitrogen that was in, in that biomass. So that's the way I've got that. And then the other part of your question is, is in circa and climate and, and those able to uh, account for that, and my opinion is no. On your uh, soybean planting, burn down versus planting living. Did you take that to yield and see any yield differences at all? I should have mentioned that the question was around where I had the different uh, burn down dates on the soybeans. 
I've got five years worth of data now. Well, no, I should say I've got four years worth of data where I had one more time. Three years of data of no cover versus cover. There was no yield difference. And then I've got four years worth of data of early termination versus planting green and terminating within five days. No yield difference, statistically anyway. Other people in the state that have been doing the same trials that I've done have seen actually some increase, small increase in theirs that they delayed the termination. But uh, for me, it's been equal. Oh, we got one back here. So you were saying that uh, cover crop holds more nitrogen. Have you seen that get released later in the season? Have you seen it um, tie up anything else with all the residue out there, or what have you seen there? I'll answer the question this way. I think I've learned that I've been applying too much nitrogen in, in that I've got a trial going this year that's focusing on nitrogen just to, to try to better understand how much nitrogen either benefit from the cover crop I'm getting or how much I'm just literally applying too much. But uh, last year I did a, a, a small sample. It indicated that I could cut my nitrogen by at least 25 pounds. And, it, and, and the kind of the nitrogen to yield ratio, it got it down to around 0.6. And so I think that that's a, I'm gonna call that an observation. That's not data because I didn't have enough replications to, to really say that that's true. This year I'm trying to get enough replications that I can see if it's truly there. It's another point that I should have made that I didn't make though is, is the uh, coming back into corn. There's lots of conversation with cereal rye and aliopathy. I've never experienced aliopathy, and particularly where I strip till, because you've got that opened up. There's really not any cereal rye in that strip, and, and it's not there. But I've also done some no-till, and I've not experienced it there. This year, I've got a trial going on with Dr. Allison Robertson at Iowa State. She's looking at seedling diseases. She, hopefully, she'll have that results out this, this fall. But uh, I've not really seen a problem with the cereal rye that a lot of the press talks about and a lot of the conversations there. So maybe some others would, but I've not. And, but I think one of the, the keys is that you need to address the nitrogen tie-up going to corn. So in my going to corn, in my burn down, I've been putting 30 units of nitrogen with that to kind of assist with that, to allow that rye to get decomposed without starving the, the corn plant. Yeah, Jack, going back to your soybean trials of those years, what, a few questions, what uh, spacing on your soybeans are you um, planting? And then the other thing is, uh, how tall is the rye? And are you doing any uh, rolling or, I mean, is it standing what, after you plant it? What was the first part of your question? What was your spacing? Oh, spacing soybeans? or population? I generally am seeding at 150,000 as far as the seeding rate on the soybeans. I have seeded green from, you know, two or three feet, like you saw in the picture, up to over six feet. Again, I've seen no yield difference in either of those. And, and one thing I've learned is that that material flows through the planter or throw, flows through the drill much better green than it does if you kill it earlier, because it, when you kill it earlier, it's dry, it doesn't want to cut as easy, and, and it'll hang up and wrap on stuff, and so that's, that's an issue that you can get into, particularly with that tall stuff. 
And uh, so I've, I've had good success planting green and, and getting it to flow through the machine. So 30 inch or 10 uh, inch, I use 15 10 inch, inch rows, was that the question? Yeah. My, I've done both 30s and 10. Most of it I use a 10 inch, it's a no-till drill, but I've had some trials where I did 30 inch row as well. Last year I had a trial that had 30 inch rows, 10 inch rows, rolled and not rolled. And the only one that had a yield difference was the 30 inch row, 30 inch uh, ro rows that were not rolled. The 10s both rolled and not rolled, and the 30s rolled all equaled, equal yield. And what was the, uh, why do you think that was different, the 30 inch that were not rolled? I, I don't know. I, I, it seemed like there was some disease or something that got into that, that piece of it that didn't, I mean, these are right side by side, so I, don't, I'm, I, I just don't have a good explanation of why that particular one, and it wasn't huge, but it was statistically different. Right down here. Well, a question is on, uh, let's say if you're going to want to, if you want to plant uh, cover crop, but you use like a residual herbicide on corn, like Balance Flex or maybe Atrazine or something like that, you know, do, how's the cover crop? Is there any test out there that proved the cover crop can, you know, grow through that? Yes, the question's around the, the uh, herbicide usage on corn, or particularly when you're going, I assume, when you're talking about interseeding back in there on these early stages. That's something you have to be particularly uh, aware of. Uh, Pennsylvania State University has done quite a bit of work on the half-life of various herbicides, and so I try to choose some of those that have some of the shorter half-life that, you know, by first week of June or something, it's getting down to a rate that's uh, usually not a problem for the, herb for the species that I've planted so far anyway. But Pennsylvania has done a lot of, lot of work on that. Uh, Jack, you referred to uh, lowering your nitrogen application. Uh, did you use uh, late nitrate stock tests or how did you uh, test that? Uh, and, and where are you at on nitrogen? Are you at 150 units or, or more or what? Well, you know, I think the other part of that question is what yield environment am I in? This, this is soil that's fully capable of 250 bushel yield. And so I had been more in the, the 200, and uh, I have lowered it. Last year, I lowered it to 175 and had some at 150. And again, that's just an observation, but that 150 yield as much as the 200 did. This year, I've got 200 and 150, and, but it's replicated, so I should be able to make a better judgment about is it different or not. So are you using it, There is nitrate tests? stock. There was soil test early. And, and I mean, I picked those rates, and those are the rates, but we're looking at it both from the soil test, and then when we get here just a little bit later, we'll take some stock tests and do the stock nitrate test as well. Okay. H have you done that? The prior? stock nitrate we have not done this year yet. Okay. No, no, not this year, but in the In past. previous years, yes. And, but I didn't do it where I had the reduced, reduced nitrogen, so I can't make any judgment but What about were those running? Were they over 1,000? I can't tell you. I don't okay. remember. Okay. Well, that's I don't fine. remember. It... Uh, yeah, Jack, I have a question. Do you see any correlation between how much growth you have on your rye in the fall correlate to a taller, more robust stand the next year? If I understood your question correctly, is, is uh, 
of having a good stand in the fall and, and that it's, that's got good growth on it, how does that translate into the growth of the next spring directly? If you've got good growth in the fall, it's got good root system, it takes off in the springs and get with it. Well, thank you, Jack, for sharing some insight into your cover cropping trials and lessons learned. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And a reminder that you can keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series. And a reminder that you can check out striptillfarmer.com slash nstc for recent news and updates on our annual National Strip-Tillage Conference. For Jack Boyer, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.